Good morning. It's my privilege to welcome you to Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here we are at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians as we're studying this last sermon on 2 Corinthians. We see Paul doing something that he hates to do and that is boast. In chapter 11, he contrasts his resume with the resume of the so-called super apostles as Paul ridiculed them, those who had pulled the wool over the eyes of the people in the church in Corinth by their pride, by their signs and wonders, all without the gospel of the crucified Lord. In all their power, they were leading this struggling church along a pathway to damnation. And yet they told the church, trust us because of all the wonderful things that we do for you. And by way of contrast, let's examine Paul's resume. He says that he was a Jew just as they were. He had reasons to boast in the flesh just like them. But he said it's all madness. It doesn't prove anything. But instead, he provides a litany of his sufferings and his struggles. He said that he received the 39 lashes five times. That was a uniquely Jewish punishment where there were three leather tongs that used to, were used to whip a person and give them permanent stripes and scars on their bodies. And it was the 39 lashes was the maximum penalty that was allowed a fellow Jew who wanted to remain in the company of the Jews. You see, Paul, if he had simply wanted, could have walked away. He could have said, I want nothing to do with any of you ever again. But instead of doing that, he took the punishment five times so that he remained among them to preach the gospel. They meant that much to him. Further, he was beaten by rods, he said. That was a punishment that the Gentiles used, that the Romans used, where they used thick elm branches to beat and axe handles to beat someone who was not a Roman citizen. Again, Paul could have appealed to his Roman citizenship, as he did in Acts chapter 16. He could have stopped it all, and yet he didn't, in order to continue his preaching ministry. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was betrayed, he faced sleepless nights with worry, and all the more, all that to say to the Corinthians, you have no idea what I paid to be able to have the privilege of preaching the gospel to you. And yet you think that you can trust some charlatans who are trying to swindle you without the cross of Christ. Here's my resume. Here's what proves my love for you, he says, but don't trust me. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of Jesus I'm not going to boast of myself, but rather than than proving how impressive I am, I want you to look at the Lord Jesus, the King of mercy, the King of grace, so that you may know how powerful and loving and impressive He is. How forgiving and kind He is to the weak and the undeserving. Is that our boast? Is that our pride? What's on your resume that you would like to be impressive and found impressive before our city. What's on your resume? Paul suggests that our resume is best filled with the words, Jesus is merciful to the sinner. That's our resume. And in chapter 12, Paul tells a story that he has never told before in order to prove that point. 
It was a story of a vision of being taken into the Lord's presence, not so that he could be proud of his own accomplishments and his success, but so that God's mercy might shine through him. What's on your resume? 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to the visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today. An often uncomfortable message that it is in our weakness that you are seen as strong. We pray that we would be people shaped by your mercy. The mercy of your life spent for us upon the cross. That in your strength we might be strong. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Do you remember... That game show, Let's Make a Deal. Anybody remember that show? I used to love Let's Make a Deal when Monty Hall, you you know, would, would offer contestants the options of choosing door number one or door number two or door number three. And maybe doors number one and two would be filled with useless and invaluable things, but door number three, it was incredible. Maybe sometimes a shiny new car, you know. Which door would you choose? When we think about our weaknesses and our sufferings and our liabilities, how do we view them? It seems that we can look at them a little bit like an episode of Let's Make a Deal. Behind door number one is the strategy of, I have to get rid of all my weaknesses and my liabilities so that I can serve God. Whatever's happening in my life, I need to get past it. I have to conquer it in order to be useful to the Lord. That's door number one. And if you live your life by choosing door number one, then you're going to trying to correct all the things that are wrong in your life in order to serve God. Then you're going to project an image to everybody that you've got it together, that you've managed to actually do it. Never let anybody see you struggle or sweat. You might find that a motivating factor in your life is saving face. 
doing whatever it takes to never feel humbled or feel humiliated before other people if you choose door number one. If you think I can only be useful to God if I've gotten my life all together, then if you have marital problems, you're going to be sure to hide them so that nobody will see If you have some besetting sin that has taken root in your life, you're going to be sure to cover it up so that nobody will ever find it out. If you feel insecure, you might find yourself relentlessly criticizing somebody else so that you feel more useful to God by comparison. It's door number one. That's the door that the super apostles chose again and again and again. If I want to be useful to God, I have to get past all this weakness and struggle in my life. Door number two is a little different. Door number two is the strategy of just live with the weakness, live with the liability, live with the pain, because there's nothing you can do to change it anyway. Door number two is the choice of despair and hopelessness. It says, I can never change, so why even try? There's no use in it. Or on the other side, I am so bad and there's no use and no power to change, so I'm a mess and I don't care who knows it. I'm going to flaunt it. At the end of the day, living this way leaves you with a sense of purposelessness in life. What does it all mean if nothing is ever really going to happen? There's never really any change, never really any growth. leaves you with a sense of despair and purposelessness if you choose door number two. It seems to me that Paul encourages and models for us the choice of door number three. Door number three is to acknowledge our weaknesses, our liabilities, our sin. Not hide them, not minimize them, but acknowledge them and be filled with more power of God than we ever thought possible before. Door number three calls us to see that the weakness of our lives, it's the loading dock for God's power to be freighted into our lives. It's through weakness. It is through want. It is even through lack that God's power takes up residence in our lives. We don't learn of and we don't experience God's power through abundance most often. But it's through struggle. It's through weakness. So as Paul says in chapter 11, verse 30, and repeats it in chapter 12, verse 5, and again in verse 9, we boast all the more in our weaknesses. Because God's power is revealed in our lives through our weakness. How does that look? First of all, we see that boasting in weakness reveals God's power. In verses 1 to 6, Paul hates to brag, he hates to boast, but he does so by telling a vision that God gave him, although he distances himself from it a little bit. Did you notice in verse 2 he says, I know a man, speaking as if it's not himself that he's speaking of, but by the time verse 7 comes around, we see it's clear that Paul's writing about his own experience. Now why would he do that? Why would he distance himself from it and then say it's his at the same time? Well, I think verse 5 gives us a hint as to why he phrases it this way. He's saying the guy who had the vision, the guy who met with God in paradise, I'll boast about him. But the man I know myself to be, the man I know that lives in the way that I so often live, I'm not going to brag about him. I know him far too well to brag about that guy. He tells us in verse 30 of chapter 11 that he would boast not in his pride, 
but in the things that reveal or demonstrate his weakness. And he gives us a great story of that weakness in his life by telling us in verses 31 and 32 about after he had been converted on the road to Damascus, he went into the desert, into Arabia, into Damascus, and was learning and he was preaching. He was preaching about the the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus. He was powerfully preaching Jesus. This man who had once been commissioned by the high priest to persecute Christians now was preaching about this Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. Instead of persecuting, he boldly proclaimed this Jesus who saves. And then, in his shame, verse 32 happened. Instead of boldly preaching, Paul tucked tail and ran. This bold preacher of the resurrection was persecuted. He was chased down and he was so afraid that they let him down outside the wall through a basket. Paul's saying, you want to know how impressive I am? When the tough got going, I got going. I ran. I'm a, I'm a coward. I'm a hypocrite who ran instead of standing for Jesus. You want to know all my apostolic credentials? I fled. Just like Peter, I fled and I ran. I'm not powerful. I'm not eloquent. I'm not strong. I'm weak and I'm a hypocrite. And then in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, I must keep on boasting as if telling that story of his weakness is a boast. And then he told the story of this tender vision God gave him in verses 1 to 6. And now this is really important that he put these two stories side by side. Because in the Bible, God gave visions to encourage His people. He says, 14 years ago, just a a few brief years after this incident of being let down in the wall in Damascus, when His ministry was going poorly, we read in the book of Acts, He wasn't seeing any fruit. He was discouraged. He was struggling. That 14 years ago, verse 2, He was caught up into the third heaven. That simply means that he was brought into God's very presence. In the Hebrew cosmology, the atmosphere was considered the first heaven, and then the stars were the second heaven, and they referred to God's very presence as the third heaven. He said, I was called into God's very presence. Whether I went in my body or it's just in my spirit, I don't know, he says, verse 3. But I was called into paradise into God's very dwelling place, the place where God walks in His garden. God called me there and He spent the day with me walking in His garden is what Paul is saying. Isn't that incredible? God called me when I was discouraged and weak and struggling and seeing no fruit in my ministry at all. He called me to spend a day walking with Him in His garden and He told me incredible things that I can't even repeat. Of that man... Verse 5, Paul says, I will boast. Of that one who got called into the presence of God when he was discouraged, when he was fruitless, of that man I will boast, but I'm not going to boast about myself. I know my heart, I know my life far too well to try to brag or make you to be impressed with me. Let's put those two experiences together. Paul is saying, I'm the, the... Weak one. I'm the hypocrite. I'm not impressive. 
I know myself far too well to want you to be proud of me. But the weak hypocrite who God called into His presence to show Him mercy and encourage Him and bless Him and walk with Him, that's worth you boasting about. Jesus, the one who was crucified for our sins and who was raised in power, reached into the life of a weak hypocrite and raised Him up and encouraged Him when He was discouraged and fruitless. And He called Him to to hear all these wonderful things about His love and His grace. That's who I am, Paul is saying. I'll boast about that man, the hypocrite, who is brought into God's presence by His mercy of the Lord Jesus. I'll boast about that. I don't want you to be impressed with me. I want you to be impressed with the way God is merciful to people who are like me. He's telling an incredible story of a Jesus who bled and died for sinners and would reach into the life of a sinful man, a hypocrite, a coward, and invite him into his presence. That's worth boasting about. Don't be impressed with me and all the stuff I've done. Be impressed by Jesus and his mercy given to people like me. That's what the Corinthians needed to hear. That's what the residents of Lynchburg need to hear. Not about a God who celebrates the powerful and the accomplished and the successful and those who try to wipe away all their weaknesses and their liabilities and then I can be useful to God. People in our city need to know about the love of a Jesus who reaches into the lives of Hypocrites and cowards and liars and posers and swindlers and adulterers and idolaters. And all by the blood of Jesus, He invites us into His presence. Not because we're strong, but because He is. That's what our city needs to see. That's what our city needs to hear. And is that what you're willing to boast about? Do you want people to be impressed with you? Or do you want people to be impressed with the Jesus who's taken up residence inside of you? That's a story worth telling. Make sure you hear that power in the weakness here. Jesus showed up in the moment when Paul was fruitless and hypocritical and afraid and he assured him of his love. He didn't say choose door number one. Go get your act together. Work out all your stuff, and then I'll show you my love. If you can get your life all put back together, then I'll put you to work and make you useful for me. Door number one, that's not what Jesus said to Paul. He didn't say, choose door number two. Just give up, Paul. I mean, nothing's ever going to change. You're never going to get anything done. There's, there's, There's no use in struggling and striving in this world. That's not what Jesus told Paul. Jesus told Paul, keep aware of your weaknesses so that you will know my powerful blood-bought love and mercy that takes up residence in your life. Door number three. That's the way Jesus treated his people then, and that's the way he treats us now. When we tell the truth about our weakness, he receives the glory. When our lives are lived not to make people impressed with how buttoned up we are. 
but rather how gracious and merciful the crucified Lord is, the one who loves and forgives and pursues people like us, then our weak lives demonstrate His power. Whatever you're struggling with in your life right now, whether it's depression or despair or sin or hypocrisy or whatever it might be, Jesus will shine His light into your life exactly where it is. Don't hide where you are, but tell the truth about it so that Jesus' glory may shine forth in your weakness. You and I have been sent into this world not to brag on ourselves, but to brag on this Jesus who loves sinners like us. It is in our weakness that God's power is revealed. Secondly, we see in this text that often the worst experiences of our lives are the tools that God uses to reveal His power. Not just in our weakness, but often in the worst experiences of our lives reveal God's power at work. We see it in this text so that Paul wouldn't get a big head about this experience. I mean, who, do, who could you talk to who... God called into His presence and strolled around the garden for a day. I mean, that, that might make you think, look at me. I mean, I'm all that and a bag of chips. I mean, that's incredible. So that He wouldn't be prideful in Himself after receiving that gift of profound, intimate relationship with God, God gave Paul another gift, he called it. It was the gift of suffering, this thorn in the flesh in verse 7. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. It could have been these problem people. In our day, when people are difficult, we call them a pain in the neck, right? In Paul's day, the expression was thorn in the eye. So it could be that these super apostles, these people were causing his suffering as they constantly nagged him and opposed his ministry. Maybe they were the thorn in the flesh. Maybe it was some physical ailment. Either a problem with his eyes or some other physical illness. We don't really know what his thorn in the flesh was. And it really isn't all that important to figure it out. What is important is the image. Thorns in the Middle East are long and big. They're a couple of inches long and they're they're big around. They're fat. They're not like the annoyance of getting a little spine from a prickly pear cactus. You know, it's not like that. This is the image of a a two-inch spike being driven into your flesh and you can't ever get it out. That's what Paul is saying. And every day for the rest of your life, that pain and that irritation of that thorn underneath your flesh, and it affects your ability to function. It affects your ability to move. And Paul says it was a big deal. So he pled with God three times to get rid of it in verse 8. And that's what we're called to do when we suffer. Not to be stoic and pretend with religious platitudes that everything's okay, but we plead with God to remove our suffering, and He answers. And sometimes He answers no, like He did with Paul. Not to make too much of the verb tenses here, but God answered verse 9, which says God answers in perfect tense, which is the verb aspect to describe action with continuing effect. It's like God is giving a a final answer. In other words, Paul asked and God said, it's not going to happen. I'm not taking it away. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. Present tense, 
continually sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect, present tense, continually made perfect in weakness. My answer is no, Paul. I'm not taking this pain away because my grace is continually sufficient where exactly where you are because my power is continually made perfect even in the middle of your weakness. The principle here is that God knows what's best for us and sometimes God knows that what we require most is not relief from our distress. And that can be incredibly hard for us to accept that sometimes God knows it is not best for us to have our pain or our distress taken away. But instead, what is best is that we have a heart that is gripped with the belief that the God inside of us can bring glory to Himself and ultimately good to me no matter what's happening in my life. The worst experiences of our lives are sometimes the very means by which God reveals His power in us and through us. What we most need in this life is a bedrock belief that the Christ who dwells in us by the Spirit is more powerful than any opposition, any weakness, any struggle, any illness, any sin that we face. Jesus in us is more powerful than that. And sometimes it takes a deep weakness and pain and distress to get us into a place where we believe that's true down into the bottom of our toes. Sometimes it takes God saying no to a prayer request for us to truly believe that He is able to sustain us even even when He says no. There is a blood-bought love that is given to you that is more powerful than any trial you will ever face. Therefore, Paul says, verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or we could translate it that the power of Christ may take up residence in me. Sometimes it is in the worst experiences of life that we are able to see And feel God's power and His love and His faithful commitment to us. There have been so many instances in my nearly five and a half years at Rivermont that I've learned that from you. I've seen it in you. As recently as hearing our officer testimonies this week, I saw once more God say to a family in this church that was struggling, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. During the middle of the deep pain, during the middle of the struggle, God's presence and His kindness in the middle, not when it's over, but while you're experiencing it. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Not simply a promise to remove all the pain and it will all be better then. But in the middle of it, even if things don't change, God is present and God is loving with a blood-bought love. That's door number three. 
So when we are called to keep the weaknesses, He shows us that He keeps us in His love. But do you have eyes to see it? Do you want to be impressive in our city? I do. The way to be impressive is not to hide our sin, hide our weakness. It's not to pose, not to pretend, but to choose door number three. So that the world around us is impressed with Jesus and not us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in our lives of weakness and struggle and pain, in our lives of distress, we pray that your power, your grace would continually be sufficient. For your power is continually made perfect in our weakness and distress and sin. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would more and more build Rivermont into a church like that so that the city is not impressed with the people in it. The city is not impressed with how well put together we see ourselves to be. Not how impressed they are with our accomplishments or our successes or our position in this town. But we ask that this city would be impressed by the Jesus who has taken up residence in this place. And toward that end, Lord, enable us to boast not in our accomplishments, but in our weaknesses so that our city will see your glory alive and at work. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.